You want me to go ahead? Sure. Let's do this. Welcome to episode three of The Gallery Gap, Out from the Shadows. My name is Melissa Moore, and I'm director of education at the Figgy Art Museum. I'm Claire Kovacs, director of the Augustana Teaching Museum of Art. Thanks for joining us again. Last week, we talked about the weenie count. And just to summarize, yeah, um, to remind our listeners, the Augustana Teaching Museum of Art, or ATMA, had about 24% of their artwork in the galleries um, that was created by women, and about 30% of the art on campus was. The figgy was around 5% in the galleries, with the exception of rotating exhibitions, which really bump up our numbers, and we're trying to do more of that. We do have good news, though, an update from last week. The figgy is now up to 6% of artists on the walls in the galleries, having been created by women. Yes, we're really excited to announce the purchase of a painting by artist Helen Lundberg. Excellent. Well, that's wonderful news. Thank you. Really excited. Um, So you'll have to come by and see it. We do have it installed already. Uh, We didn't, though, last week, we didn't get a chance to talk about Atma's exhibition spaces. So did you want to maybe wrap that up? Yeah, we can talk about that really quickly. I don't want to keep belaboring this as we should be constantly thinking about this, but we want to move forward and talk about other things in the gallery gap. So just really quickly, we have uh, three exhibition blocks this year that we've covered so far. And the first one was a celebration of 30 years of women in gender studies at Augie, as I've mentioned in earlier episodes, and featured two exhibitions. One that was the Gorilla Girls, and the other was an exhibition by Kia Marcelo Junio. It was called Battle Dress, Camouflage as a Metaphor for Passing and Other Works. This was a really important exhibition because it was both an installation and performance. We, uh, we teamed up with Roz Talks, which is a great local arts institution also, to, uh, to do that performance. And I want, to, I want to use this moment to put a pin in something that we need to come back to, which is that Kia Marcelo Junio's work is important to us in this conversation because it brings into the fold both gender nonconforming artists and and trans artists. And it's an important conversation that we're going to be having, dear listeners, but I'm going to put a pin in it for right now because we're going to return to this broader conversation around gender in our April 5th episode, which we which will belatedly celebrate Transgender Day of Visibility, which is March 31st. And I think that's a really great time for us yeah. to explore yeah. that further. You have had two additional exhibitions, yes. though, this year. Yeah, and they've been about on par with what we've been seeing in the, the permanent collection galleries. So this leaves the Atma faring much better than the modern galleries at the mm-hmm. Met, which we discussed last week. At the Figgy, I would say that exhibitions really help us broaden our scope as but really it's um it goes beyond that to how we're we're thinking about acquiring new works and planning our exhibitions to to be as thoughtful as possible and the acquisition of the Lundberg piece really helps right and and there there have been a number of works that have been dedicated to the figgy recently right in honor of its 10-year anniversary so there's including the Rose Franson so if you remember the Rose Franson from episode one if listeners if you haven't listened to that go back and check out that episode where we We give out gold stars yes if you remember (laughs) things from earlier episodes uh, do you want to tell us a little bit more about one of those works? Yeah, the Rose Franson was was big. We also received a piece by or a portfolio by Carol Walker, mm-hmm. which is big, the Yuriko Yamaguchi. But what we're talking about now is actually um, a piece by Alison Tsar. This piece called Cotton Eater 2 is a large woodblock print. 
And Allison Saar has had exhibited at the Figgy in 2013, but it wasn't until closer to our 10th anniversary in 2015 that we were able to acquire this piece. If you'll recall, Allison's work was largely sculptural mm-hmm. in that exhibition called Still. So that's what people might be more familiar with. Um, Cotton Eater 2 as a woodblock print really gets at some of the same concepts, but takes mm-hmm. it in a different direction. So I think that's a good starting point for us to discuss this artist who has been so powerful in terms of communicating her ideas through her art. And and she, her her artistic upbringing is, is something that I, I think is particularly um, important for us to, to talk about. And so before we even talk about her work, maybe you want to introduce our another voice that we'll have in the conversation for the first time this week. This is very exciting. Yes. (laughs) We had an opportunity to speak with Allison herself because there's no better way to communicate information about an artist than to have the artist's voice. Yeah, exactly. And and, and have her her participate in this conversation with us. So um, so we we asked her about her artistic upbringing and uh, we'll share a little bit of that conversation with you. Well, you know, the one thing about growing up in a family of artists is that art is always going on around you constantly. And I think, um, you know, we, we, when I was growing up, we, my mother didn't have a studio, basically the studio was the kitchen. And so she was a printmaker at the time. And so we had, um, you know, vats of acid with uh, copper plates soaking in it, you know, right next to the, to the kitchen table and the kitchen sink. And, you know, we all kind of respected it. And, and, but, you know, what was really wonderful was that we were always encouraged to make art um, maybe to keep us out from underfoot, but it was always just something that we do did. I mean, we, we did watch our share of television and things like that as well, but we would constantly be making things. And um, I think as a result of it, my sisters and I grew up maybe developing a visual vocabulary before, you know, a, a spoken vocabulary or a language vocabulary. And so um, it's, I guess, no small wonder that, um, one of my sisters is also an artist, one is a writer, and I think a similar sort of um, scenario went on with my own family that now both of my children are also artists, and um, it's a, kind of a nice way to grow up. <laughs> I mean, really, can you imagine having been raised in such a supportive environment for exploration and creativity? Really, just a great way to to grow up. Well, and I really like this idea of the kitchen being the heart of the home. I mean, we, we can think about other other artists who have utilized that. And also, you know, I just think about, you know, when you have people over, you always, you know, try to set up some other place, but everybody ends up, in the, end up in the kitchen. Yeah. kitchen. <laughs> and, exactly. and even even in our own work, at least I can speak for myself, my partner and I, we both have our own separate spaces and uh, for, for offices, I should say. But both of us end up really just fighting over the kitchen table as, as our working space, moving each other's laptops yep. <laughs> out of the way. It's the nicest window. It's, it's a central place. And I, I really like how, how Allison reflects on art making and also sort of this, this, this central part of the home at the same time. It's just, it's, it's nice. It is, you know, and it, obviously it's very important to how she was brought up mm-hmm. and what she's ended up doing. So in her artwork, Allison explores themes of history, religion, cultural and social identity. Um, She's particularly interested in examining the positioning of women and African-Americans, both throughout history and in contemporary culture. As a a woman with a biracial background, her work on the subject is personal, yet it's also deeply shaped by history, becomes almost universally recognizable. 
Uh, for example, her use of everyday materials, which she merges with her interest in African art and ritual and Greek mythology, really create artworks that all at once are familiar and yet continue to challenge historical stereotypes. Yeah. Allison's curiosity about her other cultures really comes from her upbringing. Her mother, who's biracial Betty Saar, is a well-known collage and assemblage artist, and her Caucasian father, Richard Saar, was an art conservator and painter. She learned a lot about her art making from her parents and, uh, and, and also about the art business from her parents. And, and one thing that I think is particularly interesting about Allison's work and gets us into the importance of intersectional identity, which we've talked a little bit before about on this podcast, is how she has struggled with the contradiction between her Caucasian appearance and her personal identification with her African-American heritage and how she uses these personal experiences to fuel her artistic wanderlust. You know, her mom grappled with this, too, because her mom uh, has a biracial identity, but she grappled with it in a different way. While Allison was trying to connect more with her African-American roots, Betty was trying to almost pass um, to connect with her Caucasian identity. Allison, coming out of the Black Power movement, has yeah. referenced um, that she really wanted to connect here and speaks about those connections through her artwork. We have specific examples, in fact, that she considers to be autobiographical. All of this has really allowed her to continue questioning issues of gender, race, racism, um, the African diaspora. I think that the best way to really think about this is to hear from Allison herself regarding her current exhibition, Breach. The body of work that's currently being shown in the exhibition, Breach, was a direct result of a residency I did with the Joan Mitchell Center, which is part of the Joan Mitchell Foundation in, um, in New Orleans. And they invite artists to come. They have a place to live in a studio. And part of the idea of the residency is that artists are coming from around the United States to interact not only with uh, the residents of New Orleans, but also other artists in New Orleans, and to kind of serve as an exchange um, that were um, sort of diplomats or emissaries of each other's work. Um, and so we're looking at new artists from New Orleans, and New Orleans artists are getting an opportunity to kind of work with artists from outside of New Orleans. And so um, what it was was like the, the, we lived in one part of town in Esplanade, and then the studios were in the northern end of the French Quarter, and so I would take my ride my bicycle every day through the Treme to get to the studio. And this was maybe some six seven years after um, the flood of Katrina, and I was just so dismayed and saddened to see so many houses still abandoned with red X's on the doors. You know, some renovation had become, but a lot of neighborhoods had still just been bulldozed and um, nothing had been rebuilt. And so it was really disheartening because, you know, we, we, we of course remember the, all of the tragic media of the actual event, but then we were all somehow inspired by, you know, these promises by, by the governor and by the mayor and by the federal government to really step in and, you know, rebuild New Orleans, make it better than ever. And um, I just was not seeing that happening. And I feel it is still really slow in coming to fruition in terms of um, there's still a lot of people that are displaced that have not had an opportunity to return to their homes. And so I became really curious about that specific event and how our nation responded to it. And I started looking into the history of 
um, African Americans living in floodplains and the his, their history with with floodwaters and flooding, and came across the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927, which, um, if you look at these maps, it's pretty incredible to see how much of of our nation was underwater at the time. I think it was the largest disaster in our nation. You know, we've had many disasters since, but um, in terms of the devastation that this wreaked and, and the huge amount of uh, acreage that was underwater, it, it was it's just a phenomenal um, event. And so I looked into this and just saw so many sort of similarities um, to kind of how the things were mishandled in, in Katrina. And basically, um, briefly, to kind of talk about the, the flood, um, basically the Mississippi, you know, after many, many, many days, weeks of rain throughout the Mississippi watershed, uh, the the water was, the Mississippi was rising. And so first off, the first defense was that African-American men were conscripted to work on the levees and build the levees without pay. Um, they were not allowed to help their families pack up and evacuate. And then when the levees finally did break, that black sharecropping population was taken and put up on uh, on the levees and forcibly, um, you know, required to stay there. They were wearing, they were required to wear tags that, you know, brought back memories of the Japanese internment in the United States where um, women and children and men were had to wear tags to say that they're Japanese Americans. Um, and so it was uh, just kind of, again, uh, astounding. And, and And this was not just like some sort of, something that was being overlooked. This was the landowners were, you know, consciously imprisoning African-American sharecropper populations on this thing so they would not flee to the north uh, and lose their their labor force. And so it was uh, maniacal. It was horrific. And I think when you look at those images of these families stranded on the levees, it just immediately brought back images of the dome in uh, New Orleans and also families that were stranded on the freeway overpasses. Uh, so uh, it, we, we've not come very far in the last almost 100 years, and it's just devastating to see how um, something like this could happen in this day and age. Such such an interesting conversation, and Breach is so filled with the research that Allison did herself on this 1927 flood, and I really appreciate how she, in her research, reflects on how it reinvigorated other artistic movements, such as blues music. There's some great examples of blues songs that came out of and reflected and reacted to the 1927 flood. Specifically, or two examples include Robert Hicks's 1928 Mississippi Heavy Water Blues and Bessie Smith's 1927 Blackwater Blues. When it rained five days in the skies turned dark as night When it rained five days and the skies turned dark as night Then trouble taking place in the lowlands at night In fact, some of this has been so influential, Allison has actually included portions of the lyrics from these two songs and others in an earlier catalog. 
Yeah, and, and listeners will will uh, post links to some of this on on both our Facebook page and also on the WVIK webpage for this episode. So make sure you check that out. And if you'd like to see the, if you'd like to hear the music in context of Allison's exhibitions, if you go to her gallery's website, La Louver you'll be able to open up the catalog that we're referencing and they've embedded the sound clips Maybe in there. Maybe we could even just do a direct link or something mm-hmm. or something yeah. there. Yeah, we'll link it. Yeah, we got you guys. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we got you all. This residency at the Joan Mitchell Foundation was really an important moment of reflection and research and reinvigoration for Allison. But there was another residency, right, that that was, was helpful for her? Yeah, it really makes me think of the residency, residency she did in 2011 at the Pilchik Glass School, um, which altered her visual trajectory. So those who did attend her solo exhibition at the Figgy, still, you might recall that many of the artworks on display were glass vessels, and many of those were reminiscent of old-fashioned moonshine stills. She even created, Allison even created glass versions of bodily organs, like breasts, wombs, um, and hearts. There were a lot of hearts and that became part of her work, and the one that I'm thinking of that really resonates with me, stuck mm-hmm. with me all these years, is called Still Run Dry. Okay. And in Still Run Dry, Allison features glass female organs that are dry, caked with dirt on the inside, um, like an abandoned liquor still, really. These vessels are barren and no longer functional. The way that she's displayed these is so powerful. They're displayed on a shelf like specimen almost in a lab. Yeah. And here she says that she's grappling with the sexism and ageism that transpires when women are no longer able to reproduce offspring. It was Allison is 60 years old. She is highly critical or articulate about her criticism of the cultural devaluation that occurs, stating that, and this is a quote, women are valued by the functioning body. When their bodies stop functioning, then they are rendered derelict and put up on a shelf. Yeah, this this issue of age, another, you know, we mentioned intersectionality a few minutes ago, but it is ageism is another another space that we grapple with as 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 women, as uh, as feminists and in our culture more broadly. I mean, in in addition, as we start to layer these onto other things such as race and and gender, it, it her work is so rich, which is which is one thing that, you know, I just it's not something that you look at get the gist of and then walk away but it it slowly reveals itself i think that's a wonderful way to put it the slow revelation (laughs) (laughs) and you really need to experience it in person please go to the website and look at images and explore her works but if you ever have an opportunity to go to an installation or an exhibition by her do it yeah and 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 sort of moving from from that um, from that work still um, or the, the work in the exhibition still to thinking about her current exhibition breach in her in her research she she looks at this book this 1997 book Rising Tide by John M Barry and this was part of her research for this project there's a New York Times book review of this book by T H Watkins that stated quote the 1927 Mississippi flood was a cauldron of racism and greed and and. Allison, in in our conversation with her, reflects on a particular work in this exhibition, Breach, that explores this institutional racism of the housing and humanistic crises of that time. So we'll hear from Allison here. You know, as as an artist, rather than just do depictions or or do paintings or portraits of the photographs uh, of the 1927 flood, I really was kind of interested in exploring kind of Oh, in, in some ways to kind of empower the victims. For me, it's really important to kind of 
remove the oppressor from the image. And so what I've done is kind of really talked about those people as survivors. And one of the images is, uh, well, there's a couple of, actually, there's quite a few, but there's some of them actually on of African Americans kind of in their encampment on, on the banks of the levees um, with piles of their belongings and what they could salvage from their homes. And so they'd be rocking chairs and mattresses and pots and pans and tools of their trade that were something that they couldn't leave behind. And it really kind of brought to mind in terms of, you know, what are our essentials and what are our most important belongings? You know, it's not you know, some folks would say it's their jewelry or their documents. But for these people, it was just kind of like their, the tools of their trades and their, their ability to kind of live in some sort of comfort and some of the maybe things that had been handed down. And so I took, I mean, I did a, a large sculpture, a life-size figure, and she's standing on a sort of makeshift raft that's maybe about four by four feet or three by three feet. And, um, as a long pole as she's she's pulling down the Mississippi. And she's standing very, very tall and erect, and balancing on her head is everything she owns. And so it's a number of old steamer trunks, and we've got skillets tied to it, and a barrel, and there's some books, a Bible, and I'm trying to think what some of the other objects are offhand. But just basically those things that you would need to kind of carry on and to basically, you know, pick up your life and move somewhere else. But just the, those real basic essentials. And so um, the figure itself stands about six feet tall, but then with all objects piled up on her head, it's maybe about 13 feet tall. And so it's an impossible load. You know, it's twice her own height and, you know, and, you know, tenfold her weight. And so it's really kind of talking about, you know, the strength of those men and women that kind of survived this uh, this ordeal and their ability to sort of defy being broken down by the oppressive uh, sharecropping and landowner communities around them. Breach is such a moving exhibition. I mean, building off of still, I feel like Breach is is continuing these conversations, linking the historical past with our more recent past to the to the contemporaneous moment, reflecting on this long history of racism in our country. And it allows her to continue to question these issues of gender, race, racism, and the African diaspora. So we so we saw this in the 2013 Figgy exhibition of Allison's work, but where the spaces of inspiration were, she reflects on President Obama's inauguration in 2008 as the first African-American president of the United States and that immediate racism and bigotry that followed. Mm -hmm. And so we couldn't help ourselves, so we thought we'd ask her uh, to reflect on how the recent election of number 45 has possibly influenced her current practice. You know, when when I did the, the, the work at Obama's election and kind of sort of my anger and, and dismay at the resurrection of blatant racism. And I think part of that is because of the tool of social media, that um, it allows people to say things, not say things to people's faces. And then, um, and then they're getting support from other, from other like-minded uh, creatures out there. And so, you know, I, I think that was kind of part of it as well. But and when, and when I went through that, you know, when I did the exhibition uh, still, I was making distillations because I was, again, just so puzzled as to um, where all this hate comes from and how, you know, in this day and age, we are still dealing with issues that our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents were dealing with. 
and and you know this sort of um, everyone talks about this bubble that and and that bubble I feel is that we really the real bubble is is that we felt that these things had been resolved and that these matters had been settled and that we had moved on to a more humanitarian era of understanding and compassion and apparently not and so that's kind of how I worked out those ideas um, initially after Obama's election. Uh, I'm still kind of like reeling from uh, the current election, and it, it just seems that everything, is, of course, has been stepped up, that those that are saying such horrific things and have such, what I feel really backwards, ideas about humanity are um, empowered by this election and are actually going out and um, physically murdering people and um, defacing sacred places, and it's it's, it's frightening. I think, you know, I also teach and I see students coming into school uh, completely in the dismay as to, you know, how can they even make art about this because they feel that art is not necessarily a strong enough tool and that they need to be out there physically protesting and doing whatever they can to sort of combat, combat this current wave. And um, so I think initially, and, and maybe because it is such a, uh, it's so intense this time around, that people are most paralyzed by it. Uh, I find it really hard to be creative in this climate. Uh, and again, I don't want to just sort of be sort of spewing out um, these angry, you know, angry thoughts and or expressing the pain in a way that doesn't somehow alleviate it or somehow transcend it. And so, you know, it takes a while to really sit back and contemplate how to make art that responds to it in a way that somehow helps to transcend uh, what's out there and somehow get us to the next place. And also somehow not to be, again, not to fall into this sort of, you know, art has a tendency to, to be, uh, you know, collected and uh, viewed by, by the elite, those who have the, not only the money but the time to go to museums and things like that. And so you, so I think this also really needs to be a wave of art that kind of becomes more more in the hands of, of everybody, I mean, regardless of, you know, their financial situation or whatever. So I think a lot of artists are thinking about doing things in public and doing um, sort of social interactive work. Uh, I'm not sure where where I'm going. Right now I'm doing drawings and, and everything's just very angry and violent. And so I'm not sure uh, whether maybe I need to make that and purge that side of it for me and I can move on to the next body of work from there. But right now it's, it's, it's pretty dark. You know, I think that Allison's reflection on where she was and where she is and really not knowing exactly what form where she's going will take is it reflects what we're doing here in a way. We're really just, um, we're trying to make sure that in the gallery gap, we're being as inclusive as possible, but we're, we're making sure that we are, you know, sharing information that we know about these artists whom we love and respect, but we also are responding to the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are not in a cultural vacuum or void. So at what point is anyone? Right, exactly. (laughs) But we, you know, sometimes we forget that. So um, I'm so glad that Allison shared that and also that she was able to come onto the show. It was such a joy talking with Mm -hmm. her. So today, 
Allison uh, lives and works in Los Angeles. She's represented by the L.A. Louvre Gallery in Venice, California, which I think I mentioned, and you can link to that gallery on the website. Her artwork, I mean, just so people are aware, her artwork is in the collections of many museums beyond the Figgy, including, I mean, the Met, <laughs> the National Museum of Women in the Arts in D.C. I mean, this is, she's a, doing really big things. Mm-hmm. And so to have her here sharing her thoughts has been very exciting for us. Yes. And, and that takes us to looking to the future, dear listeners. Next time on the Gallery Gap, we will be looking at two women who are balancing other parts of their lives in, in relation to their artistic practice. We'll take a look at probably an artist you've heard of, Lee Krasner, and uh, another artist who's more regional. And for those of you who are up on Swedish American artists, maybe you've heard of her, Sophia Hag. And so we'll take a look at both of those women's works and lives and, uh, and take the conversation from there. I just also want to remind you to, if whatever way you're listening to us, to remind you of the other ways of engaging with the Gallery Gap. You can check out our webpage on WVIK, where we will post some of the additional videos and songs and photos that we've talked about today. You can also subscribe via iTunes or Google Play. And you can uh, like our Facebook page. We will be continuing to post information coming out of this er, exhibition, this episode, (laughs) (laughs) and other episodes and other conversations that are happening in the world that connect to what we're talking about here on the Gallery Gap. And sometimes goofy photos of us, too. Yes, maybe. Maybe that will happen occasionally. As always, we want to thank the Figgy Art Museum, the Augustana Teaching Museum of Art, and WVIK for their continued support of this project. A special thanks, of course, to our production team, Lacey, Scarmana, and Alfredo Manteca, and of course, our featured artist, Allison Zarr, and her gallery, L.A. Louvre in Venice, California. This podcast would still be a mere idea, really, if it wasn't for the generous sponsorship of Pedersen Pates Design. Thank you so much for making this program possible. Thank you. And last but not least, (laughs) thank you to all of our listeners. We will see you next time. Or you'll hear us next time. Ah, you'll hear us next time. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks.